This is the On The Touchline Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. Welcome to the show. You guys hear me talk about this all the time, and I absolutely love their product, so I want you to know about Duke Tig Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. If you need a notebook that is already pre-lined, that you can just jump right in, plan a training session, take notes during a match, Duke Tig Brand has got you covered. And guess what? They also have waterproof products. And if you work in the coaching world, you know how unpredictable the weather can be from week to week, match to match, training session to training session. They also have apparel too. So I can save you 10% today by going to checkout at duketigbrand.com and use the promo code BROADWATER19, B-R-O-A-D-W-A-T-E-R-1-9 at checkout. duketigbrand.com, plan to be great. The way you play is a reflection of who you are as a person. This is a quote that Taylor Gonzalez, today's guest on the On the Touchline podcast, remembers from one of her coaches throughout her playing career. Now, something like this may or may not be true in your situation, right? But in Taylor's situation, she describes exactly how that quote fit her to a T. If you love a story of someone who has punched above their weight class and has proved people wrong um, throughout their footballing career, you're going to really like today's episode. And for any parents or coaches that are listening, that there's this fascination if a player isn't in the elite or premier or first team or whatever your club or organization might refer to it as, that everyone else, maybe the second or third team, um, that, you know, they're just there and um, not really some of the best players at the club or part of the organization. And Taylor's story is one of being a late bloomer in that given the opportunity, so she never played for the premier or the elite team with the clubs that she played for. She was always in the second or third team. But how that was motivation to her or for her to go on and be a standout college soccer player and now a standout college runner. So today's episode is about motivation, grit, determination, all those things that we love as footballers and as soccer people. Um, I think Taylor really embodies all those great qualities. So before uh, we get into our conversation with Taylor, uh, a friendly reminder that this podcast is available on every major podcasting outlet and whatever podcasting platform you prefer, be sure that you subscribe to the show and you'll never miss a new episode on most Wednesdays and Saturdays. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, I want you to hit the pause button right now, go there and leave a five-star rating and a review for the show and help more and more people in the footballing world or when they do a search of football or soccer podcast that they will find this one very easily. 
So thank you that if you've left a review uh, or a rating, I really do appreciate it. And of course, you can reach out to me at any time. Uh, I'm at SoccerCoachJB, or you can reach out to Aaron Rogers, uh, and he is at Ohio Soccer Coach on Twitter and Instagram for both of those for both of us. All right, guys, uh, enjoy this episode with Taylor Gonzalez from the University of Montevallo. Taylor Gonzalez, thank you for joining the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast. And um, much like many of the guests are, uh, that have come on the show, Taylor, that um, actually found out about you via social media. And uh, I guess that's the world we live in these days. Um, and one, complete admiration for your um, just dedication to not only staying fit, but workout routine. Um, you're a beast. <laughs> I'll just come right out and Thank say you. it. Uh, it's actually quite impressive. So we'll uh, make sure we list uh, Taylor's handle that you can go check out her work or whatever. I saw you kicking around the soccer ball uh, yesterday. Yeah. So I can yeah. see you're back, right? <laughs> but um, for folks who don't know you, um, give folks a little bit of a background, um, you know, where you grew up, where you're at now, and uh, a little bit about your backstory um, and introduce yourself to the listeners. Okay, so my name is Taylor Gonzalez. I'm from Overland Park, Kansas, and right now I'm currently at the University of Montevallo. I played soccer there for four years, and then that last semester of my senior year, I decided to walk on a track just because it was something I'd never gotten to do before, not in high school and nothing before that. Kind of gave it a shot and ended up being really good at it. So now I'm actually back for a fifth year to run cross country and track again. So that's just kind of my little background as to how I got involved with all the things that I'm doing now. What was uh, your youth soccer experience like and sort of the journey you went on, um, you know, the, the twists and turns that is youth soccer um, to get to Montevallo? So the way everything kind of worked out for me, I was always on either the second team or the third team, no matter what club I played for, where I came from. Same thing throughout high school. Like I was the kid who was essentially like second best throughout my entire career for club. And I think being in that second best on that second team or being the kid who wasn't starting, but was that first sub in that kind of gave me a really good platform to come into college. So for club, I played for a team that was really, really solid. We were a team full of the second best. So we all had that work ethic kind of instilled in us early on because we always had something that we wanted to reach for because we were never on the first team. We were always striving to be on that first team. So that club career of mine kind of put this amazing platform out there. And then throughout tournaments, we gradually grew as a team and that's how we got exposure to come to college and to go to all these different showcases to find our niche when it came to school. But that's just kind of how that morphed and evolved because that just really helped me grow as a player. There's a, um, I would call it a fascination, a, I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for, um, maybe a, a, just a really strong hunger amongst parents that if their child isn't in that first team, um, is, a, is a youth, you know, footballer or soccer player, that they somehow have failed as a parent, right? I've had this conversation with not only 
um, parents that, you know, their kids have been on my team, but, you know, I've heard it on the sidelines, um, you know, from parents and that's all the way from youth all the way up through high school. And I'm curious, I, you know, obviously I'll put you on the spot here to, to speak for your parents, but I wonder how that was handled um, because it sounds like there's a really great lesson learned by you as an athlete that, you know, whatever you want, you have to work for it. You have to put the time in, you know, what team you're on. Yeah. Okay. It, maybe it's a little bit important, but it didn't stop you from pursuing your goals, your dreams, getting to where you wanted to go. And I'm curious if those conversations were had at your house, um, you know, or how mom and dad or your family, um, you know, may have reacted to that. So we have, my parents have three kids. So I'm the oldest and then I've got my two younger sisters and our youngest sister was the kid who was on the first team. So the whole should be here, that person should be there conversation was definitely a regular in our household, whether it was day to day or week to week, that conversation was had. So with my youngest sister being on the first team and my middle sister and I being on either the second team or the third team, I think that definitely fueled that a little bit, but we could also kind of realize Yes, there are some politics that come with placement and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's okay to be a late bloomer, which I found out in college and which my middle sister found out in college. It's okay. Yeah, we may have been on the second or third team for club. And then we get to college and all of a sudden we're four-year starters. We're the leading points getter. We're leading in goals. We're leading in assists. And it's like, okay, just because I was here for club doesn't mean I can't climb the ladder in college in comparison to some of the kids that were on those first teams, all of a sudden by their freshman, sophomore year of college, they weren't playing anymore. Mm. So you kind of see this almost peak or this climb for some kids, they hit their peak really, really early and it just kind of clicks for them. For other kids, it takes a little bit longer and that's totally fine. And I think my parents are finally beginning to realize that, 17 years later into my soccer career, 15 years later into my other sister's soccer career. So it's just kind of funny the way that all worked out. Aaron, I have a funny feeling that um, these are, these are some of the types of players that you like to recruit uh, to your program. And yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, the psychology of, of what you're talking about is as a, as a player and as a student athlete is, is so important. And it's, there's so many ways that you can look at this a you know the recruiting is so early in college now for female mm -hmm. sports especially um that players are committing as freshmen and sophomores in high school and how are you really projecting out what somebody's going to be like three years later they're committing at 15 years old and what a different person that you are from 15 years old to an 18 year old yeah from an 18 year old to a 22 year old. I mean, and so that projection is very, very tough. Um, and, and in a second, and furthermore, that when you are a, most of the time, when you like the, our roster here, we had 28 players on our roster this last fall. Every one of those players started on their club team, started on their high school team. And was it, integral part of their team well when they come here as a freshman some of them are really experiencing something for the first time of not playing 
mm-hmm. and not being a starter, not being that person, that player that p- people are looking to all the time. And psychologically, how are they, how are they prepared for that? How have they been prepared for that? And, and w- how do they deal with that? And so those are things that are um, very challenging. And as we as we recruit, we are trying to figure this out. How do I know what that individual is going to be like when they are confronted with hardships, with challenges, and and that's that's the the mystery. <laughs> that's the mystery, and I think it's it's amazing to hear your backstory of of finding your way and. <laughs> as of not necessarily being on the premier team, but still finding your way to follow your passion and your love of, of being a student athlete. And, and I also think that that goes to show you that, and I talk to, to prospective student athletes all the time and coaches and parents, there is, a, there is a place for anyone that wants to pursue collegiate athletics. Division one, division two, II, division three, NAI, junior college, thinking about all the avenues that you can go and to never give up on searching for that right opportunity. And, uh, and it sounds like, you know, um, Kansas city to Montevallo, Alabama. Yep. <laughs> That's a big yeah. change. I've been to both places. Really? <laughs> oh, oh, come on. <laughs> ODP region three i was about to say usually it's odp that's how people know what montevallo is been there many many times as a coach and as 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 recruiting Uh, been there stayed in the dorms visited the local places which there aren't many no there's not (laughs) but listen i live in athens ohio and i mean ohio university is probably a little bit bigger than montevallo but (laughs) it's still a small town so I know what it's all about. So what, what was, so how did you, how did you find Montevallo then, or how did they find you? So a little bit of a funny story there. My team was at a showcase in Tennessee and pouring down rain. I mean, it's basically a monsoon. There's puddles in the middle of the field that we can't pass through. We can't run through because the ball's going to stop. And this coach walks by the field of our, for our first game and not supposed to be there, wasn't going to come and watch our game, was actually going to watch another game. And my dad was the team manager at the time, and he handed him a profile. So the coach stopped for a second and watched. And that second turned into the entire first half, then the rest of the second half. At the end of the game, he has four numbers circled, and he asked my dad, who are these players? And my dad's telling them about them, like, oh, that's Danielle Wolf, that's Danny Fleck oh, that's my daughter. That's Taylor Gonzalez. And the coach looks at him and says, you guys will be getting an email shortly after the tournament's over. Didn't come to another one of my games. And the Monday after that tournament ended at 8 a.m., I had an email waiting for me from the coach at Montevallo saying how he loved how I played, loved what I could do with the ball, and wanted me there for a visit. And Four months later, I'm in Montevallo, Alabama, driving through, and I'm thinking, what the heck is this place? <laughs> why, are, why are stoplights hanging from wires right above the road? What are wooden street signs? I've, I have no idea. And then they had a seven-on-seven tournament that day that they wanted me to come and watch. So I'm sitting there watching, and one of the girls from our team gives away the ball. Other player immediately takes it straight down the field and scores. 
and our player raised her hand and said, that's my fault, guys. That's on me. And I had never seen that kind of accountability in any player that I'd ever played with, let alone watched. And I'm like, that kind of accountability is something that I want to be a part of. And I don't even think that player knows that that's, she's the reason why I decided to come in because I was like, I want to play with that. I want to be a part of that. So that's just kind of how I ended up coming here to begin with. And then the reason why I stayed is an entirely different one. Now that those things happen. I mean, obviously being in the right place at the right time and kind of serendipitous moments of that coach walking by and, and, uh, but I've been there. I've recruited the same way thinking, yep. Oh, I'll just stick it around and watch a little bit of this game. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'll tell you a quick, real quick story, a player, one of the players that uh, we had in our program. Um, I actually was at the state high school championship game, which was, which they always play in the Columbus crew stadium. Mm-hmm. They're right next to the Columbus crew stadium. There's a little tiny, like five V five pitch. And I, it was in between games and I walked over there and there was these, this team playing 5v5 and I saw a player on there and I'm thinking to myself, wow, she has to be committed somewhere, blah, blah, blah. And I talked to the coach and, and he was like, nope. And that's how I saw a play, a future player. Well, she's done now, but a player. So yeah. these a uh, small world of soccer and be prepared yeah. to always be on your best as a player and be prepared to always look for, uh, potential uh, future players. Yeah. So, Taylor, you're talking to uh, two former goalkeepers and Aaron being the, um, the far and away better of the two of us. <laughs> but um, I, I, being a field player, I, I'm wondering what you were like and describe yourself, you know, in terms of your style of play or, um, you know, hey, this was something that I felt that I was really good at um, as a player. And I say that because, um, you know, I, I can tell that there's a, an absolute love for having, uh, you know, a, a soccer ball at your feet, right, and being good on the ball. But I'm wondering, you know, how would you describe yourself as a player if, you know, if you took a step back and maybe you were trying to recruit yourself or, or something like that? When it comes to taking a step back, so what Aaron actually mentioned earlier about how can you project a kid out from the time they commit at 14 or when they're visiting at 14 to 18 to 22, if you had seen me as a freshman in high school, a junior in high school, to a senior in high school, you would have seen three completely different players, let alone college. So take that completely out. My freshman year of high school, I would have been lucky if I'd gone to a junior college because of how far behind technically I was, because I was always the fast kid. I was always the fit kid. So I was your typical right back. And then my junior year, after a full two years worth of development, where I was just focusing on technical development, I was good on the ball. That's when I committed. That's when I recruited. I was an eight at that point. I was a pure center mid. I got the ball. I gave it, got the ball. I gave it. I was enough of a playmaker to where I was impacting games but I was still selfless by the time I got to my senior year it wasn't I was technically competent it was I was technically good I was very 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 good so I had this four-year metamorphosis of a player who can't kick a ball in a straight line to a player that was going to take you on and then I get to college and that became 
my identity as a player. I was extremely techy and really, really good with the ball at my feet. I mean, I love to take players on 1v1, almost to the detriment of the team at times. And I think it drove my coaches a bit crazy. But I mean, I love the idea of being able to see what you can do when you're going against somebody and how many different ways can you improvise. So I was your typical wide player. We played in a 3-5-2. I was part of the five. And basically my job was to run at people and to see how many chances I could create a game. And I love doing it. Sounds like you were uh, not only comfortable, but, you know, good at it um, as well. Talk about, you know, so you, you recognized a, um, you know, early on in your development, uh, a deficiency, right? You said, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I wasn't that good technically with the ball. But knowing that that was an area you wanted to improve in, what did you do? People can go watch the videos, but what, what did you do, um, you know, in terms of enhancing or developing or, uh, you know, gaining those skills that you might have been lacking at the time? So I actually train at a place called Athlete Fit, and I've been there since I was in seventh grade. And I continued through that program, and now I actually work there. But initially, it was YouTube. I literally looked up however many technical drills I could find. And I was out on the field for three hours a day. And then my boss kind of recognized we can use this. And then he started implementing that in our program there. So I was almost doing double duty there where I was training on my own, doing these simple little technical drills. And then I was doing it at the place at the time that I was working out at too. So I was getting so many reps in just by looking things up. And then it became oh, now I'm going to try this. I saw a player do this, so now I want to try that out. Then it was training for multiple hours a day in the racquetball room and just figuring out how can I pull off this or how can I open up my body. So just by either watching other players or just by looking things up, that's how I was kind of able to accelerate my development that most kids get at an early age. I was all of a sudden getting at 14. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think that, um, I don't know, uh, youth players, so I, I love what you said that, you know, taking players on 1v1, and I, I want my players to do that, but you have to have a certain level of confidence as a player to be able to even do that, right, to be creative. You can't do the same thing every time. They're going to figure you out pretty quickly. Um, you know, there's a, a level of strategy involved um, in terms of taking a player on 1v1, and, you know, the, that word confidence, again, in terms of you know, like, damn it, I'm good enough. I can take you on. I'm going to beat you. You know, I mean, it reminds me of when I was in college and would play like pickup basketball with some of the guys. Now, granted, I wasn't very good, but you know, I always thought that I was better than I actually was, but you know, having that confidence to take a player on it. And I wonder, and I've seen it with youth players that they treat a soccer ball sometimes like a hot potato where they treat it (laughs) like it's a ticking time bomb. Right. And that, for me, there's a direct correlation that, you know, comfort level on a ball is also related to confidence. Yes. And it sounds like that your confidence shot up when you became more technically proficient with the ball. So I don't know if that's something you've noticed or, you know, just have seen yourself develop or, or grow in uh, as a player. 100%. The better I got on the ball, the greater my confidence increased. It was exponential because 
one of my favorite quotes that my coach told me is the way you play is a reflection of who you are as a person. If that 14 year old me, that fast fit kid was super shy, super quiet. That was kind of a a reflection of my relationship with the ball at the time, because I drew a lot of myself, a lot of my identity through soccer. And you see my growth as a player. And all of a sudden you see this confidence and both of them are going up. And by the time I got to college, I was secure in the fact that I knew that I was good on the ball. And that confidence came through repetition to the point where not only was my confidence showing on the field, but just day-to-day life, walking to class, hanging out with friends, introducing myself to new people, which was never something that I would have done as a freshman in high school. Now it was like, okay, what my coach was saying makes sense. The more confident I am in something that I put worth in, something that I value, the more confident I am elsewhere. So 100%, literally through the repetition and through the confidence that I gained on the ball, it skyrocketed everything else. Well, we live in a world right now where there's a, a whole lot of gadgety, um, you know, things out there, right? You scroll through your Instagram feed. I mean, I think I saw two or three of them just today alone that have come up as, you know, advertisements of, hey, buy this product. It'll help you get better at X, Y, and Z. You know, it's smoke and mirrors in my opinion. And I think one of the things you've done, and, and you've shared this, um, you know, on your Instagram, literally it's you, a ball, and a wall, passing, receiving, Um, you know, body position, body shape, angles, all these small little details that, you know, um, maybe a parent might miss, a coach might miss, but are incredibly important, right? And, you know, it's not just, um, you know, dribbling through cones or unopposed training or or whatever. There's a a place for all these things, by the way, and, and opposed training, obviously. But people forget that the most simple way to train is literally a ball, a wall and a player. Yeah. And, you know, uh, so I, I know you've gone that route and maybe speak to that just for a moment in terms of the success you've had, um, you know, developing confidence with both feet. You mentioned before about being able to make a pass. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it sort of all ties together, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of problems that players kind of run into is they don't know where to start they don't know what to do. And I think sometimes we as coaches get caught up in, well, just pass, just go dribble, just go do this. So when it comes to what can players do or what did I do, it was by looking things up first. And then once you kind of get that little foundation under your feet and you're like, okay, I I know I can do that because I at least have a direction now. Then you get confident with that, then you start to experiment. It's like, okay, well, what if I did a roll to inside outside touch, not just a roll to inside stop. And then they get confidence because one, they just came up with something and two, they can do it. So then they keep on growing with this. They start chunking things together. They're making new patterns. And now you've got a player who's owning their own development. So it starts with the simple drills like passing and receiving or inside and outside touches. Like for me, it was just two touch passing against a wall and then one touch passing against a wall. And then it was, okay, can I open up? So just by giving players that little bit of direction and making it sound simple where it's like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can do two touch passing. And then you steer them in the right direction. And then if they want it, they're off. And now they're going at it full speed and they're taking control of it. Aaron, go ahead, jump in. 
what as a as a student athlete as a soccer player specifically what was your process through your freshman year through your fourth year or your last year as a soccer player in taking responsibility for your own development i think it stayed basically the same because my coach trusted me and he every once in a while had to say i want you to do this a little bit differently or i want you to refine that i want he never said i want you to be that player and i think that's something that i was striving for my entire club and high school career like i want to play like neymar i want to play like danny alvis i want to play like iniesta i want to play like this player he said no no no. i i don't want that i want you to be the best you whatever that may be so it was me going out on the field for a couple hours a day after practice and either doing footwork shooting or passing and i would alternate between those three i hit them each at least twice a week so on top of training i was doing that outside of training and that was just a constant all four years i wouldn't say that anything ever changed it was mostly just i was getting better at the things that i was doing so so during season obviously you put in a little extra work your season's over in the first of november division two you guys have a little bit different spring than division one is is, Mm -hmm. as far as the amount of time that you can play as a team what was your what was your process like from November through April I mean November through April April I remember season ends October 31st and my teammate on the bus ride home asked me how many days I'm going to take off I'm like I'm not I'm starting tomorrow (laughs) and I think that just kind of took her aback but essentially off season. So November, December was about three hours of training a day on my own, back at home, back at athlete fit. So that consisted of a lot of agility, a lot of footwork, a lot of passing and the footwork and passing and agility were actually how I got my fitness in. I never actually ran over the course of four years as a soccer player. I ran four times. I ran once a year with my sister because she asked me to, because she asked me to pace her through a fitness test. And I always came back as the fittest player on the team and the fastest player on the team. So it worked because I did all of my ball work and all of my um, passing interval style. Getting into January through April, when we got to do team training again, whether it be individual sessions or conditioning sessions, I would do those with the team. And then I would still supplement with the ball work, the passing, and then the finishing outside. So that was still about another three hours a day, just a little bit more almost weight room focused or gym focused in the spring, which is usually how most programs go because the spring is about more individual development. How much did you play? So games, practices? What no, do you- just like pick up. Like because I, I talk okay. to our players all the time. Listen, soccer is a game. And what are our games supposed to be? They're supposed to be fun. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to enjoy that. And so get together with two, three, four, or five, however many teammates you can, and just play 2v2, 4v4, 6v6 mm-hmm. on small goals, on big goals, whatever it is. That's what we do. That's the passion of what we do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the commonality of why we're here is soccer. Probably wouldn't be friends with each other if it wasn't for soccer. Yeah. So enjoy what brings us together, together. And I mean, how how did you see that kind of stuff? So my freshman year, the men's team actually kind of adopted me and they were playing futsal in one of our little side gyms and they had seen me kicking out. They knew that I could play and they knew I could play well. So they brought me in. 
So by my freshman year, I was playing futsal with a bunch of these foreigners from the men's team. And that kind of carried on throughout the spring, throughout all four years. And then it was, well, now the women's team wants to play too. So then we would go out, we would play pickup, whether it be outside with small goals, or we actually scheduled like an indoor futsal league Wednesday mornings instead of our normal like practice sessions. And our coach was like, okay, yeah, sure. We don't know about it. So you guys go ahead. So that's kind of how we got into it with a lot of small sided stuff. So how many of your teammates, your teammates, because obviously the men and women are different and their <laughs> motivations and drives are different. How many of your teammates did you get to come in and play? Not because you made them, but because they saw it and they wanted to be a part of it. My freshman year, it was just me. Mm. Then my sophomore year, it was myself. And then I think one to two other girls. Actually, no, it was three because it was my roommates. So my roommates, after my freshman year, kind of realized, okay, wait, that looks kind of fun. I kind of want to go play soccer tennis. So then it was us four. Then my junior year, we bring in a couple more kids. And now we've got about eight of us going out and kicking, whether it be soccer tennis, whether it be futsal, or whether it be small side outside. And then by my senior year, it was an expectation. And we got in a Brazilian girl who I absolutely love and adore. I mean, the kid lives and breathes soccer. So it's you factor in her, you factor in a couple of other kids. And now all of a sudden, we've got more than half the team that's going out and doing this because they want to do it and because they love it. You know what you just created? A culture. You got it. A hundred percent. And your coach didn't make you do it. You chose to do that. And I think it's fascinating. And it's awesome that you, that you had that foresight because I tell our players all the time as we build our, our culture and each culture, every year is different. Every year we have new people creating a legacy and building on the legacy and creating that new legacy. And you hit, you said something that, that stuck with me is you said by your senior year, it was an expectation because when new players come in and they see the returning players do it, then they automatically think, I guess this is what we do. This yeah. is what Montevallo soccer does. This is what Ohio soccer does. And it's no different for them. And it just takes that, uh, the lack of a better term, peer pressure to bring people yeah. in because those properties uh, those transactional properties or those transformational properties as opposed to transactional properties where you decide that you want to do it as opposed to your coaching staff making you do it <laughs> creates a stronger, more successful bond between each other and <laughs> potential for success. Doesn't and guarantee one, it. Sorry. Potential. Go ahead. No, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So one thing that's crazy about that my freshman year we won one game my sophomore year after we had fired that coach for my freshman year, we won two and then it was six games. Then it was our first winning record in 10 years. And this year, five years after that initial one win season, they just won their first conference championship and made it to the NCAA tournament. I saw that. Yeah, and that you look at this growth and when you look at the number of players who did extra work, it's increasing and it's constantly growing. And then it's not just them doing extra work because the extra work is a requirement. It's because they want to do it, whether it's for themselves to see themselves grow, to see the team grow. And this year was the first year I think my teammates could say it was because they wanted 
their team to grow, not just seeing their own numbers improve, whether through statistics or through confidence. Fantastic. Taylor, you strike me as a, um, a highly motivated and a highly just driven, um, you know, young woman. And I, I think that's awesome um, is, the, is the, not only the, the dad of three kids, but two little girls in that, um, you know, people that you look up to and people that you sort of idolize, right? And that, you know, for me as a goalkeeper, you know, Tim Howard, um, you know, people love him or hate him, but this sort of, uh, you know, idea of like, gosh, like there's an American goalkeeper that I could maybe be like someday. Mm-hmm. I like the way he plays or I like the swagger he sort of has, you know, and he's that's more, you know, you're sort of wired this way or are there people, um, and it could be family, it could be, you know, athletes, it could be friends, aunts, uncles, whomever that you sort of looked up to as a young person going like, I want to be like them. I'd say that, yes, I'm definitely wired this way. Like I know that between my other two sisters and I, we're all three completely different people. We're three completely different players. Um, But in terms of who I looked up to, it was honestly Mia Hamm because that was the first. Mm. Like that was kind of at the time, the pinnacle of women's soccer. And I remember my dad, when we would go out to the field when I was younger, like maybe eight, he'd say, you're a mini Mia Hamm. And that just kind of stuck. Because she was fast, she was aggressive, she was fearless. And from that point on, I'm like, I, I want to play pro. That's, that's what I want to be. And then it wasn't necessarily Mia Hamm's name anymore. It was, I just want to play pro. Not, I want to be like her, but I want to do this. In terms of um, just the managing the, the work life and sort of the, you know, all the, the responsibilities you have as an athlete, um, you know, it, it's made for some people, right? And it also can break other people. And I saw this uh, when I went to college that, you know, guys and gals, and you'd mentioned this, I think, earlier that, you know, some players that may have peaked a, a little too soon and, you know, they don't even make it through their first year or whatever. And I'm wondering, um, just knowing that we have a, a mix of folks listening to this show, but especially young athletes um, in terms of, you know, it goes back to what you said. I have this idea of I want to get to a certain level, but then what is actually required when you're at that level, right? So you're working hard, working hard, working hard. They say, you know, hey, Taylor, we want you to come play for us. You get here. Okay, new environment, new people, you know, whatever. How do you manage your time? How do you manage the the distractions? How do you manage the, you know, the, the peer relationships, the, um you know, and, and I haven't even said a word about academics yet. <laughs> so, oh, oh, by the way, probably the most important part, um, probably why I'm not a college coach yet. <laughs> but uh, tell me what that was like for you. So, like you said, the academics probably being the biggest part, that honestly is because, I mean, at the end of the day, if you don't have, I think it's either a 2.5 or a 2.0 GPA, you're not playing. And our coaches set the standard a little bit higher saying, "Uh, uh-uh, no, it's going to be a 3.0 or higher. And if you dip under a 3.0, you have study hall and it's mandatory. So by valuing schoolwork and by emphasizing that, you already get kids coming in who are going to be a little bit more inclined to care about their schoolwork. But setting that aside, 
being able to manage my time came down to how many hours a day I knew I was going to be practicing. And for me, it was helpful because our practice was in the morning. So it's not like I was going to be doing anything else at that time. I was going to be sleeping if I wasn't. I wasn't going to be doing homework. I wasn't going to be hanging out with friends at 5.30. No, I was either going to be asleep or luckily going to practice. So that made that a little bit easier. And then getting done with classes, knowing, okay, I want to go to the racquetball room from two to six and I've got a gap from 12 to two. So I need to study and eat. And then after six o'clock from about six to maybe nine, all right, that's when I can get my schoolwork done. I was also lucky because of the way my classes panned out. I had a lot of time during the day to get all of my schoolwork done during my first four years. This year is not the case. This year is a completely different story where, yes, I still have practice in the morning, but my classes are a lot more spread out throughout the day, but they're also back to back. So I don't necessarily get the same luxury of built-in study times. So it means some later nights and making sure that I get my schoolwork done because I am still competitive on the academic front. I don't just want to pass. I want to get a 4.0. I don't want to just get a 4.0. I want to be the best student in the program. So just making sure you know what your goals are and scheduling your day around what you need to do to achieve those goals, whether it is in the classroom or on the field, or for me in this case on the track. I'm going to have you mentor my two daughters when they get a little bit older. <laughs> that's a, that's a hot mess right there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, so uh, you, you graduated with one degree, you're back for a second uh, bachelor's degree. Um, and tell folks a little bit about your path. You're now doing a second sport. Um, you've also been highly competitive and done well in that sport um, from what my research tells me. So, yeah. you know, how do you, you know, uh, you came in as a, as a soccer player and as a footballer, but you're kind of on your way out as something else. Uh, but yet yeah. that love of soccer obviously is still there. Um, tell folks a little bit about your journey, what you've studied and maybe where you see this all going. So I came in, like you said, as a soccer player, and my first degree was in exercise science. So everything about the human body, how do you apply it? How can you train people and train them well? By the last semester of my senior year, so no, sorry, at the end of my junior year, I was at home for summer break and something just kind of bugs me in the back of my head saying, what if you did track? I'm like, shut up. You hate running. Like, why would you ever do that? That's stupid. Don't know. So I put it away, I shoved it to the side. I'm like, don't ever think about that again. And it kept on coming back and it was needling and it was just eating at me. And I'm like, you know what? Fine. I've joked about this with the cross country coaches for the past three years, but I'll email them. There's no way they'll say yes. Well, I did. I had a voicemail that night from the track coach saying, yeah, if you want it, like, go ahead. Like you can walk on, send us your sizes and you'll start December 1st after soccer season's over. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm doing this. All right. Wow. So fast forward through my senior season, I actually tore a muscle in my knee that season from a girl sliding to me from behind, ran me into the goalpost, the goalpost hit my shin, severed the muscle that attaches your femur to your tibia. It's called your popliteus. Most obscure muscle in the body possible, managed to play the rest of the season without it, but I definitely had a major limp. Running helped rehab it in a way that I would have never expected because there's no set protocol for that rehab, because usually that's the last muscle that goes in a total knee blowout. So by me training for track, that actually helped heal my knee. I jump into track season and all of a sudden it's 
I kind of found my niche. Like for as much as I love and adore soccer, for as much as I lived and breathed it, it kind of gave me a new perspective. It's like soccer doesn't just have to be the only thing in your life. You don't just have to be a footballer. You don't just have to be a soccer player. You can be other things without feeling like you're abandoning something else. So that spring was when track season kind of took off. And after my second race, I was four seconds off of going to nationals for the mile and something that I just started. And that's when my coaches were like, do you realize how good you are? I'm like, no, I, I ran a 503 mile and I ran really like I, that hurt. Okay, cool. And at that time I was actually trying to play professional soccer. So I was reaching out to different clubs. I was thinking about getting an agent and I actually got two offers to go overseas, one for a team in Norway, then one for a team in Finland. And at that same time, my coaches offered me to come back and run cross country and track for a fifth year. Hmm. The two teams that wanted me to go pro wanted me to go in March before I was done with school, before I was done with track. So I turned them down because I wanted to finish it out. And at the time I'm like, I've got a shot at winning something because over the course of four years of college soccer, I didn't win anything. I got no all conference awards, nothing. I think the best thing I got was all tournament team my junior year. And I'm like, I've got a shot at winning conference. I have a shot at doing something that I have not done before, but something I have been working towards for Lord knows how long. So I stayed. That summer, I gave myself the full two months to try and qualify or try and get a team, try and go overseas. Didn't work out. So at that point, I decided to take the gap year to just focus on running and sell out and become the best runner I could be. Fast forward a year later after training by myself for a year, now I'm back and I'm getting that second degree in dietetics while also running cross country and track for the first time. This past season, my first season ever of cross country, I ended up getting mono in the middle of the season. (laughs) Go figure. And rebounded from that and ended up going to nationals by an individual qualifying time and then PR'd by 34 seconds at the national championships, which was insane. Like to drop 34 seconds in a season is the equivalent of a kid going from left bench to scoring almost 15 goals in a season. So like that to me, that was just crazy the way it all kind of worked out. Aaron, raise your hand if you can run a 503 mile. I can run an eight-minute mile. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. The goal is to go a little bit faster than that this year. The goal this year is a 436. Hey, well, I'm a 46-year-old man, okay? (laughs) That doesn't do anything. A former goalkeeper, mind you. (laughs) I'm the oldest freshman in the NCAA right now, so. I got you. Well, congrats on the the Nationals um, finish. That was fantastic. I just read the story. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So um, where do you, once you're finished, uh, you know, academically and your eligibility is up, what's next in sort of that, you know, phase of your life? So I was just talking to my boss slash coach about this about a week ago about how I'm about ready to let this chapter close. I think when I first graduated, I wasn't ready to close the Montevallo chapter yet because I wanted to come back and I was waiting for this moment. I was waiting for nationals. I was waiting for track. And now I'm ready to kind of move on from that. I'm getting excited for being able to work again and getting to do my job. So the goal right now is to go back and work at athlete fit 
And there I'm a sports performance coach. I'm the director of technical development. We have our own training system and philosophy that we coach at home back in Oakland Park, but we also take overseas. So this past year, we actually got to go to China and we got to present to their Olympic committee about how you can produce youth athletes. How do you train them and why is it different and what's the best way to do it? So by coaching and mostly education about training philosophy and different ways to get it done, that's definitely the niche that I want to fall into once I'm done here. Wow. Do you ever see yourself, um, you mentioned the, the technical part of, uh, you know, football or soccer. Um, I don't know. Do you ever see yourself being a college coach maybe? I've thought about it and I've gone round and round with it. And the reason why I haven't, and I don't think that I will is because with every team, you have the 33% rule. You've got the top 33%, which make your job worth it. They're the kids that you love investing in. They give you everything they have. They're the joys to coach. You've got the bottom 33%, which are the kids that will never listen. They'll give you any excuse in the book and they'll bad talk you. They'll do whatever they can to not do the work. Then you've got the middle 33% who kind of fall either way, depending on who they're around. And the culture kind of dictates where those kids go. Cause you get a lot of middle 33% kids. You get maybe one to two top and you can get a lot more bottom kids just depending on what the team is. And I wouldn't ever want to be in a position where I'm dealing with kids that are making me bash my skull against a wall when I know how simple it can be or when I see so much potential being left on the table. Whereas the job that I have now, it's you get the kids who want to get better. You get the top and the middle. And if we do get a kid from the bottom, they don't usually stay for long because they don't want to do the work. So I love the sports performance side of things because you get the motivated kids, you get the drive. Not entirely sure about team coaching. It would probably have to be like the perfect scenario the perfect setting where I'm like, okay, yes, this is something that I want to buy into and invest in. Hmm. I think Aaron and I have had this conversation, Taylor, that um, it it's really interesting when sometimes you feel like you want it more than the players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, obviously don't know you exceptionally well, but I mean, to have a player like yourself or, you know, maybe some others in your network that are motivated, that are determined, that, you know, are spending literally three hours a day training, um, you know, off season or whatever makes our job incredibly easy. Um, we're, you know, Aaron uses the analogy that we're basically the, um, the bumper rails on a bowling alley. You know, our job is just to keep you from, you know, going in the gutter. Yeah. Every, everything else you're, you're more or less kind of managing on your own. I find it incredibly fascinating as a coach trying to motivate, like you said, that middle to bottom, um, you know, I guess it'd be 66% of what do you do with them? How do you get it out of them? And it's different. You can't paint it with a broad brush. You can't, um, you know, there isn't sort of one magic uh, panacea that's going to fix everybody. You know, some respond better to verbal communication. Some prefer a one-on-one conversation. Some prefer, you know, sort of the group um, stuff or whatever, but they're all different. And I think that is probably, you know, really the art of being a coach where that comes in and, you know, Aaron, I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience probably 50 times over. Um, so. When yeah, it comes- listen, my, my goal, my goal, and, and it's funny that you talk about the thirds because I have taken it upon myself 
in maybe a a quest that is never going to be fulfilled or or conquered to make sure that every single player on our roster has an engaging feeling with our team and i don't know if it's possible because there's always outliers that aren't happy with something or not motivated or you know because you know you can we could talk for days and days or at least i mean i can because i can talk a lot but talk for days and days on why people are where they are why is somebody on the montevallo soccer team why is somebody on the ohio soccer team or why you know because their motivation everybody comes from a different place mm-hmm. emotionally and and how are, and why are they there and that's my goal and so you know i think i think it to understand and to be self-conscious about that or self-aware to say, you know what, I don't know if I want to deal with people that aren't motivated like me. Cause that, that is the hardest thing. Cause I don't think you'll ever be in a team that the players care more than you. Cause if there are, you should never coach obviously. And, and you being so motivated, you will find that hard to see players that have potential, like you said, and, mm-hmm not be able to feel like you can reach them. And, and so, cause I, I know if you, to be self-aware at your age to understand that because every college job from the very, very top to the very, very bottom is, is always a motivating challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear you talk and, and just cause I am so fascinated from the, 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 the culture building for lack of a better term of understanding and what motivates each individual to want to be there, not to have to be there, but to want to be there. And, and you taking upon that role that you did that we talked about earlier is, uh, is very, is very encouraging. I do have one question about if you gave, if you had a piece of advice to give to a freshman, what would that be? going into as a soccer player? Learn to love it, learn to embrace the hurt a little bit. And I think (laughs) the learn to embrace the hurt part has kind of come from track for me. Mm. Like learn, maybe a better way to put it is learn to be uncomfortable, embrace the uncomfortable. Because if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. Mm -hmm. Because with soccer, it's so easy to fall in love with the game I mean there's so many different ways to be a great player that you find your niche and you learn to love it because some players love feeling fast some players love being strong some players love being able to control a ball so by falling in love with the route that you want to develop in it makes the journey easy but you've got to be okay with being uncomfortable with it and that comes from my sort of track and cross country experience, it's like, okay, if I'm not uncomfortable during a workout, either one, I'm going too slow or two, the pace isn't fast enough or three, maybe I'm just super fit, but it's usually not number three. So learn to be okay with having to work for something because that work is going to make you better. No matter what it is, you're going to come out a better player than when you first went into the session. If you get okay with being uncomfortable during that session. Very well said. Um, Taylor, if uh, people listening to this want to connect with you and follow along with your journey and 
um, you know, uh, kind of see what you're up to. Uh, what, what is or what are some of the easiest ways they can connect with you? Usually through social media, like the way you guys reached out. So like my Instagram handle, my Instagram account is gonzogirl11. So that's my main one and has my email and everything on there. So that's definitely the best way to get in contact with me. Yeah. She's a great follow in, uh, thank God the world of Instagram and some of the other social channels we have exist. Um, because if it wasn't for that, I'd honestly, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation today. So good stuff. Um, Taylor Gonzalez, thank you so much for coming on the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast and uh, best of luck the rest of the way uh, at Montevallo. And um, please stay in touch. Uh, I, your, your story is absolutely fascinating and can't wait to see sort of what the next chapter holds for you. Um, but I mean, just a really... I, I love the the self-awareness and perspective about hard work, determination, perseverance, and, and kind of what that means, you know, today for a, for a young athlete. So thank you so much for having me. A big shout out to Taylor Gonzalez for coming on the latest episode of the on the touchline podcast. And Taylor uh, really enjoyed learning about your backstory and um, just overcoming adversity in life and such a valuable skill that we learn through soccer and sport and just the all the the reasons that many of us uh, have gotten into, you know, this is a profession. So I wish you all the best and uh, can't wait to have you back on the show uh, sometime uh, in the future. So I put this request out on social media uh, earlier this week. Uh, I would like to do an episode of the show where we answer listener questions. So you can send me a question. Uh, I'm at SoccerCoachJB on Twitter and Instagram. And you can DM me. Um, you can tag me. Whatever your question might be. Uh, nothing is off the table. And that we will work that into an upcoming episode of the show. So we'd love for that to happen here um, as we begin or getting close to beginning 2020. You can find this show on all major podcasting platforms. So whatever your favorite podcasting platform might be, please be sure to subscribe to the show. That way you never miss a new episode. And if you listen to the show on Apple Podcast, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review for the show and help more and more people in the footballing world learn about the On the Touchline podcast. Guys, thank you so much. Um, season three has been a blast, just like the other two seasons thus far. And I uh, hope you're enjoying what you've heard uh, thus far, now that we're a few episodes in. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you guys real soon. This has been the latest episode of the On the Touchline podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Broadwater. <laughs>